0: I had a commissioner at the BBC who said there's still a cloud over you because you work for the sun, which is like a punch in the bollocks every time I hear it because I've tried my very best to move away from that, be a different person, and you know, establish myself elsewhere. So I'm not over it. And it's like a chip on the shoulder I carry around with me.
1: Movember presents In The Barber Chair, a podcast dedicated to bringing you real cuts and real conversations about men's health. I'm Matt Johnson and I'm your host. Movember wants men to take action to live happier, healthier, longer lives and they invest in prostate cancer, testicular cancer, mental health and suicide prevention. Hi, this is Matt Johnson in the barber chair for Movember and today's guest is Gordon Smart. I know you're a long-time supporter of November, aren't you?
0: I am indeed, Matt. It's lovely to see you, by the way. Yeah, I see you're kind of sidestepping the November pressure of a moustache and hiding it with a full beard there as
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> in my defence, it's, it's, it's not even November yet. And, I, and I'm, I'm th- <laughs> thinking about, I'm thinking are you going to do one? Are you, are you up for it this year? Are you going to do the tash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm up for it. How many years have you done it for?
0: Yeah, definitely. I've, I tell you what, it must be it must be over ten years. I seem to remember about maybe twelve years ago. I think we got um, when I worked at a newspaper, The Sun. Get it in there early, the popular newspaper that I used to work for. <laughs> um, we got a, Stephen Graham and Peter Crouch to grow a moustache. And they got so much trouble for doing it with me in the newspaper that I think it was probably a bit of a false start. Um, But I've done it every year since, pretty much, given a a couple of years off. But um, I've been involved a lot. I owe it an awful lot, actually. It's introduced me to a lot of really interesting people, including your man, Jason Fox, from SES Who There's Wins. Um, And we did kind of the precursor for that series and got an absolute beast in the woods from him and Ollie Allerton for 24 hours from November. And then I had the, br- the brutal joy of not realizing you were well enough known to get commissioned for the celebrity version of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I, I actually needy did that show, and uh, not that show, what you did, and in 2017, I think, late in November, yes. something around that time, yeah. I needy did it, but I was working away. I'm gutted that I didn't do it. Oh, There's really? something that I definitely. I mean, my, my dad's very militant. He's, he's, he's grown up as a tough guy from Cofillia and his dad and his dad and his dad. And it's just something I, I feel that's in me. That I'd love to just really explore that mental and physical toughness.
0: What was it like? You'd be good at it, actually. You should get yourself in about it. it was, um, I was kind of bracing myself for the brutality of the physical stuff, which was actually all right. We were lucky the weather wasn't too bad. If the weather had been grim, it would have been tough. And I thought, actually, given what I've been through in newspapers, I think in terms of mental robustness, I'll be all right. I should be able to handle <laughs> that. I've been interviewed by the police a few times. You know, that can't be too too hard. Um, and uh, it, was, it was fine until I think I did three hours standing in a stressed position with my hands out in front of me with tie wraps around my wrists, with uh, goggles on, headphones with a baby crying. And every time my hands dropped, even a centimetre or two centimetres, somebody would come up and slap me about the face. So I did about, I think everybody else was taken in for interrogation during the time I was standing there. And by the time I got taken in, I was really toiling, you know, shaking like a shitting dog. <laughs> um, and I, I got taken in and they whipped everything off and then they blast this bright light in your face and the lovely woman who does the interrogation on the show is just standing there with her big way eyes saying, would you like a cup of tea, son? And you're like, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea. And then this guy with a handlebar moustache comes around and say, like, do you want a, a cup of tea? Do you think you're here for a cup of tea, son? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, here we go. But I did it at the same time as Warren Brown, the actor, and Warren's a former world champion Thai kickboxer. And Warren had to get taken out for his own safety because one of the, they did this big psychological test before you went in to make sure that you wouldn't break and do anything silly. And Warren, one of the triggers that you know when he's about to lose his rag is that his top lip starts trembling. He's got a little twitch in his top lip. And the, the guys, some of them were recently just out of Afghanistan, just out of services and still quite, um, shall we say, confrontational. And Warren's <laughs> top lip went and he got whipped out of there before he did some damage. Because that's the thing, you know, I, I mean, I always think with those boys, like when Tony Bellu did it, you don't really want him starting to swing punches, do you?
1: No, not ideally. That's not the, the best scenario in that, in that situation. Well, I find it all really interesting because yeah, you you were the start of that run, and then the SES who days wins with Foxy has become so incredibly popular. And it I find there's no coincidence why that's happening because men, especially myself, and I'm speaking on from from experience, I am desperately yearning to actually be uh, part of something genuine, rough, authentic, and dangerous, and and I've got a feeling it's it's definitely a lot to do with the modern Western way of living. Uh, would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely, one hundred percent, Matt. I mean, look at those hands, right? They've never done a day's work in their life, right? They're just beautiful, <laughs> soft little hands, you know. Touch keyboards, you know. I've never been never been on the work, on the building site, and I I agree with you. You know, I think there's something in us that feels. Like, we've had it too easy. Our generation has been incredibly blessed by the life we've Mm. led. You know, we we got, I read a thing this morning about how kids are getting wound up because an Amazon delivery is six hours late. And (laughs) you think back to what, um, you know, even our our parents' generation had to deal with. You know, it was a totally different world. I remember my dad saying to me once if you didn't get your fiver out of the bank on a Friday, you had no cash for the weekend because there wasn't an autotel or an ATM or somewhere you could go get your money. So you had to make sure you had your money out by the weekend. And we don't know how lucky we are, but I'm totally, yeah, totally the same. And again, same as you coming from Wales and Scotland, we've got, probably got military family in the background. My granddad was a soldier. And I remember once he couldn't work the air conditioning in his car and he asked me to show him how to do it. So I pressed the button, it all came on and he grabbed my wrist and looked at my hands and he said, yes, yeah, son, never you go to war, you know, make sure you never go to war. And Look, you know, I get goosebumps oh. even thinking about it because they they toiled for us to have this mm. luxurious lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and 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 that is a blessing, and and also um, very, from my experience, um, quite dangerous for some some men because um, having a very easy life, which I'd like to think that I've had in compar- in comparison to my great granddad who was. You know, at, at war and my granddad who was down the mines eating lunch with the rats, et cetera. I mean, my, my life has been fairly easy, but I've desperately struggled with my mental health issues throughout my life. It's especially over the last 10, 15 years. And, and it, and it does coincide with not having a physical outlook on life, not having, not being really ground down to a point of despair, if you know what I mean. And I, there's a point to what I'm saying. So I've I've been through um, and a lot of men in their billions across the world struggling with their mental health issues, maybe because they have this inward uh, need to be animalistic at times.
0: Yeah, precisely. And I think that's great that you're talking about it in your prepare to admit it. Listen, these are different problems, right? right? And I'm sure if you thrust your granddad and my granddad, one a miner, one a soldier, your family from a very similar background in Wales, put them into the world we exist in, they would struggle because it's, it's beyond comprehension. I read another thing recently that in our grandparents' lifetime, they would meet people during the span of their entire life, the same number of folk that we would meet in a month. And that's a level of information and uh, emotional pressure that's pretty pretty serious. Mm. And like, it's a different time. It comes with different pressures. And we're all wired up in a very different way. And I think it's phenomenal that you talk about it. I think it's great that Foxy's been one of the flag bearers for people you would imagine to be completely robust actually admitting to having problems and difficulties with their mental health. And I think it's important for guys like me as well, who you might assume coming from a tabloid background has got a certain thick skin, but... I'm the same as you, right? There are days that I just think, how did I get out of bed this morning, right? You know, I recently lost my job. I lost my health. I'm up in Scotland thinking I've been forgotten about. I'm terrible for comparing myself to other people who work in the same industry. And it's very easy to get into that spiral of bad habits. And the best way to deal with it, from my experience, is either to get outside and enjoy the outdoors and get some exercise or talk about it. And, you know, again, I think we're both very lucky and we've got wonderful friends and great families that can support us, but you still have those moments, don't you, mate? I mean, listen, I remember working with you on this morning, would that be eight or nine, maybe 10 years ago? And there were days I was turning up there absolutely steaming from the night before, pretending I wasn't drunk and, you know, trying to juggle a young family, you know, trying to cope with the pressure of the newspaper and I was just sitting there thinking, this is too much. <laughs> this is really yeah. too much. And then you'd be sitting there as well. And I'd think, God, this guy's got his shit together. Right? <laughs> he's, he looks phenomenal. He's in great shape. Here we are at six o'clock in the morning. He looks like he's already been at the gym. And I was just sitting there <laughs> like a wreck. <laughs> Can, I need to be more like this guy, and um, it's funny, isn't it? And I'm I'm, te- I'm terrible for it, Matt. But that's, that's myself really, to other that's,
1: people. yeah, really interesting because comparison is the death of joy. You looked at me saying that guy's got it all sorted out, where I was massively struggling about around about then, like in, in a very different way. I had my issues in 2009 when I was as a reporter in, in South Wales, right to be Wales News, going through a terrible time of depression. But when I was at this morning. I was on the surface, like king of the world, like doing network television, earning money, living in London, had a nice car. But I hadn't dealt with any of my shit at all, not one bit. And it was just like a house of cards, just absolutely ready to come down. It's very interesting that you pick up on that because I think a lot of people do that. They have this facade and they're like, do you know what? I put this bat suit on and everything's going to be fine. And I, I can tell you from experience it catches up on you. It does indeed. And it doesn't matter who you are. uh, Mental health issues do not discriminate,
0: do they? No, definitely not. And I think it's so important, again, that you've been honest enough to admit that because so many times in my career, I was told by my bosses, time to put your suit on, son. It's time for you to grow up. So I ended up becoming this person or pretending to be this person I wasn't. And that just leads to trouble as well. You know, Um, I can completely sympathise and totally empathise and understand that position you were in. Um, where people have this idea that you're doing really well with your life, but actually you're, you're the classic swan, aren't you? Your feet are thundering away under the water and you're, you're mentally calm on top. But again, that's why I think November and a lot of the mental health conversation that's happening at the moment is so good and so awesome and so helpful. And I, you know, I still find it slightly difficult to talk about and be completely honest about, but the more guys like you do it and, and other people you've had as guests recently, um, I think the better and it's uh, particularly in sport by the way you'll have noticed too mm. sportsmen are becoming really good at being flag bearers for that and being honest about your feelings
1: well the, well the more conversation about it the better and the more un- understanding and as well normalising for me um, the the awareness of tools for your mental health and I've acquired some and I know so many of the guests on this podcast have along the way the hard way yeah, yeah um, what what tools have you picked up on to, and red flags that go off if you, if you are triggered by something?
0: Yeah, I've got the classic trigger for me. I'll do something really, really silly, like have a, a mad night out where I'll just go out and get so, so unbelievably drunk that, you know, things will go horribly wrong. So I can, I can think of an example. In about 2013, I was really feeling the pressure at work. We'd been through the Levison inquiry. There were criminal inquiries going on I was 32 years old. I had two children under three. Um, and I was, I was thinking about my next step. What do I do? Do I become the editor of The Sun? Do I leave newspapers? And my instincts, my gut was telling me it's time to leave because I wasn't very happy. But also at the same time, I had the security of uh, life insurance and health insurance and you know the, the broader comfort blanket that a big company provides. And it was just this huge melting pot of emotion that was going on and I had a night out, uh, it was the GQ Awards 2013, and I woke up the next day at about half past 10, 11 o'clock, with 180 missed calls on my phone, with my next-door neighbour banging on the window, and I was lying in my pants covered in salt and vinegar crisps, and I thought, oh no, this is just out of order, what have I done? And it was, you know, my bosses were ringing me, their secretaries were ringing me, my wife had rung me 100 times, and I'd I, I just pressed the self-destruct button, you know, and gone so wild that night that I, you know, I really needed to have a look at myself. But as a result of that, I ended up finding myself as the editor of the Scottish Sun, which is a long, long story in between, which I won't bore you with. But it was time for me to grow up. And I'd been saying for two years to my boss, I want to do a grown-up job. And that was kind of the trigger for it all to happen. But then suddenly, within three weeks, I found myself in charge of 150 people in Glasgow. Not long after that, I witnessed a helicopter crash The Scottish referendum was happening. I was 32 years old. Like I say, my wife was at home, mega stressed with the kids. And it just, again, I found myself feeling this tightness around my chest, this uh, uh, anger around me all the time. I had this terrible temper. And I think generally speaking, I'm quite an upbeat, friendly, optimistic person, but all the time felt stressed. I was always looking at my phone or waiting for my phone or expecting some communication from Rupert Murdoch or my bosses in London. And it just felt like I was so stressed that I was going to do something stupid uh, and my my release the way I dealt with it, the way I handled it without realizing it at the time I had a wonderful dog called Fletcher and I used to Thank take you. him for a walk up the hill behind my house and an hour and a half to the top of the hill and back it gave me a chance just to breathe stop pause consider what was happening what I had to do and compose myself for the week ahead and I was very lucky again I've, I've got some great people in my life who've been through difficult times, been through really high-pressure jobs, and I just asked them for help. You know, I, I found it I got better at asking for support. And sometimes just to have a bit of affirmation, occasionally you need somebody to say, do you know what, Matt? You're a really good lad, right? Regardless of what's going on, I know you really well. I know what you love. I know you're a good person at heart. And just to have somebody you respect, admire, or are friendly with telling you that can just elevate you from from the pits of despair. And again, you know, there were moments... I was given a mentor by News UK to help me, um, coach me through sort of difficult, difficult stuff like making redundancies and handling really difficult HR issues. And I, I'd go in and see her some days. and I just want to cry. You know, she'd say, "Like, right, come on, what's up today? And I just wanted to say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. I want to run away into the Highlands and not speak to anybody again. And she was great, and she helped me provide the framework for the decisions I made in my life to get me to the point where I actually finally left newspapers. And it took me three or four years to pluck up the courage to do it. But like I say, I know the triggers. I know the triggers. And again, one other thing I should mention, Matt, sorry if I'm boring you here, but um, I wrote wrote Vinnie Jones' book. So I was his ghostwriter. Vinnie gave up drinking when we wrote his book. And um He was full of great wisdom, Vinny, and he said a couple of things that that really sunk with me, sunk into me. And, uh, you know, when you've got a guy like him who's got this reputation for being a certain person and you get to know him and realise he's somebody else, that helped me cope with the public image of me being this tabloid guy and who I actually knew I was behind the scenes with my friends and family. And having him as a support was quite helpful. (laughs) <laughs> Which sounds ridiculous. I mean, who do you turn to? <laughs> you know, oh, Jones. My yeah, sponsor, right. He was, he was Jones. good to me. He was really kind to me. It's yeah. it's and really he, interesting know.
1: what you say, and and it's it's wonderful to see you let rip really with that honesty. It really is because I I I really understand that two um, two dimensions to people's outward personality and their inward personality, and and I and I really explore that within myself and then I even with mates it's that you know who am I why why am I why am I going on three-day benders in the grouch show why am I doing that you know um, and there's a lot to do with suppression of your actual true self and there's there's a projection of an image that you you feel as if you should adhere to or you're having to because it's your work is that something that happened with you because you're working at one of the the biggest tabloids, uh, red tops in the world. Did it not sit well with your internal being
0: that you actually are? Yeah, definitely. I struggled with it massively the older I got. So when I started working at The Sun, I was 22, just turning 23. And I think, you know, obviously I'd been at university for a few years. I'd been living in London. My wife was a singer and a dancer. She went to musical theatre school. And between us, we were really struggling financially, Matt, like really horribly struggling financially you know luckily I bought a flat in Edinburgh which had sold and we bought in a place called Sutton in Surrey uh, southwest London and I was working as a football coach then I was an unpaid journalist working for the Sutton Guardian kept getting spells of work experience and everyone was like you're just a Scottish guy that doesn't know anybody couldn't get a job in telly couldn't get a job in radio had so many interviews for jobs as a reporter as a journalist and I was at the point where you know I was really down I remember applying for a job as a bus driver in Surrey. And I was like, I've got five hires. No, I had seven hires, a six-year study, a degree, loads of experience. And I just couldn't get my break. I just couldn't get my break. And I went back to Edinburgh for a year and worked as a reporter, which was one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. You know, I did all the ugly shifts, like asking, knocking on doors of families who were bereaved and had lost children and things and asking if they'd give us a picture and a story for the paper. It was horrendous. Like an awful, awful year. And then suddenly, um, because of circumstances, I found myself reporting at the MTV Awards in Edinburgh as a freelance journalist. And guys I'd worked with in 1998 at a local paper in Scotland were working for The Sun. And because of certain circumstances, they ended up saying, you should come and work for us. And I got offered something like three times the salary I was on in Edinburgh to come back to London and work for The Sun. Now, uh, when people question me about my ethics and the decision to work for The Sun, I, I always say to folk, right, imagine you're 22, skin engaged to be married, you haven't got a pot to piss in and you get offered three times your salary to go and work for the biggest newspaper in the world at that point. This is pre-internet reporting before big websites. It was a massive opportunity and I just grabbed it and worked my arse off but then suddenly you become, you're no longer a reporter Climb your way up, you become one of the bosses and you're responsible for the headlines, you're responsible for, or certainly I felt a responsibility for the way people felt about the articles that were written about them And then with social media kicking off around 2006, 2007, you start to hear the voices of people who have been perhaps upset or annoyed or irritated or angry about what you've written. And also you're more aware of the bigger political issues for the paper, like Hillsborough, for instance. And you really start to consider it and think about it. And then you're the boss. And you can't blame anybody at that point. You are responsible for it. You can't say, ah, listen, that's not my fault. It is your fault. And that got louder and louder and louder. And what was a bit of a laugh and fun and what I thought would carry on reporting on celebrities suddenly became something completely different because I came, became very close to a lot of people I was writing about. And then you become a hotline for troubled famous people. You're in trouble at work because you're not writing about the stuff you really know. So about, I don't <laughs> know, 50%, probably less of what you know is going in the paper. But then you're on a good salary, you've got a good life, you've got amazing expenses. But then you go out in the evening and people you really love and respect and admire Think you're a total dick because you work for the sun, <laughs> and it's it's hard, right? Because you know the people you admire who think you're an idiot. Some folk don't give a shit, right? Some people couldn't care less about your profession and realise who you are as a, as a bloke. And um, but then it started to bother me because it was affecting my family. And um, you know, my wife would get gyp and hassle, or people wouldn't speak in front of her because they were worried she would tell me stuff that would then end up in the paper. And it just became. A total mindfuck, Matt. This is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, it sounds uh, it. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. How did you
1: get out of that?
0: Oh man, what it was, was tricky. The moment when you went, I've got to just get, I've got to get out of this. There were quite a few triggers, uh, quite a few points that I thought this is this isn't sustainable anymore. And I should point out as well, like some folk will be listening, going, "No sympathy for you, tabloid scumbag." I totally understand that, right? We, I can't say "woe me" and "poor me" because we dished it out, right? Um, But we did a lot of positive stuff as well. But there were some massive triggers. Like, you know, I remember writing a picture caption when I was about 26 about Joe Swash coming out of a nightclub pissed. And I wrote something really irresponsible about him and the girl that he was coming out with. And the phone rang the next day and it was Joe Swash's granny saying, that's his sister. (laughs) I'd said something like, I know, I'd said something like, Christ, Joe, you must have had at least 10 pints before you decided to leave China White with her. And it's like, it's just like, oh, God. You know, and I I think it's important to admit mistakes like that, right? Because I'm a 40-year-old father of two, been married for 17 years. If that was somebody writing about my son or my granddaughter or my daughter, I'd be wanting to ring them up. And I think you just become a bit more mature, a bit more experienced. So that, I mean, that's a fairly horrible and uncomfortable thing. There's a lot of really sinister stuff, like, you know, I don't really want to go into it now, but, mm-hmm. you know, gangsters. Um, The criminal aspect of reporting on crime—you know, writing stories about people who really didn't want to be written about, who were actually bad, bad to the bone, folk that would hurt you and hurt your family for writing about them—then getting involved in politics and suddenly being courted by famous politicians who thought they could win you over to sort of influence your opinions on things like the Scottish referendum or the European referendum—and then suddenly to be cast aside because you're no longer very used to these folk. And that, I found that with music and celebrity as well, like famous people want to be your best friend because you want to curry favour or maybe have some protection. And it was a real barometer of who your friends were when I left Bazaar uh, because suddenly I'm in Scotland and i have no use to certain famous people. And it's got dropped. And mm. listen, I'm sure you've been through a similar thing where you're helpful to people and then you're not. But then what happens is you always return... Your security and your foundations, of the friends you grew up with who going not give a flying fuck about your job or who you work for. They know you as the guy they grew up with. Um, and I think, yeah, like you, the question you asked was what were the triggers? Really serious shit, you know, like the European referendum, where you're getting followed home by people who aren't happy about the publication you work for, or you suddenly have police in a parked car outside your house because there's been an Osman letter, a threat to your life as a result of your job working for the sun, or when you receive a bullet in the post from a certain group of football fans.
1: That's not necessarily a trigger. That's a genuine reason to have a mental reaction, fear. That's, that's huge. You know, you know, having a bullet to you, but for whatever reason, had anybody prepared you for that? It, or can you prepare for, for that?
0: Um, I'm very fortunate and that I had a really solid upbringing, you know, and I, again, you're the same as me. We grew up in in a part of the world where you're quite streetwise, right? So you know if you fly with a cross, you get shot with a cross, as they say in Scotland, or if you pick a fight or turn up dressed for a fight, you're probably going to get one. So, you know, I was pretty streetwise and and knew the risks, but nothing prepares you for being told by a policeman that they have intercepted correspondence relating to your safety and security. That is terrifying, man, and then like one minute you're interviewing Beyonce in New York, the next minute you've got Scottish gangsters who want to break your kneecaps. It's um, it's a bit of a, a bit of a shock. So no, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, and I think I probably, with hindsight, should have sought more help for stuff like that and not been afraid to to say I'm shitting it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is the absolute truth. Fuck me, that's <laughs> incredible. It's it's stood out to me there that. That is a life that is kind of snowballed. You've gone into it early twenties, and then all of a sudden, you're in charge of it, and you're getting bullets through the door. And I can, you know, I can, I can see as a compassionate human how somebody can end up in that situation, especially when you have the the. You, you can say, "I'm looking after my family, and I'm looking after what I think is important to me." To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. How do you say goodbye to that life, even though it's not right for you? You know, you're getting death threats, and I think that's usually a sign to get out of whatever you're doing. Um, How do you say goodbye to that security blanket, even though it's the opposite of security in many ways?
0: Again, it's a great question, Matt, because it's something of, discussed with people before where they say, why don't you just leave the sun? And you're like, well, I've got long-term incentive bonuses that would make my family financially secure. If I died for whatever reason or became really ill, I know that they would be financially secure. I had an incredible expenses thing where I could, you know, go for dinner anywhere I liked and have it looked after. And, you know, I was living in a really nice place. All that security has got a currency with you when you want to look after your family. And, um, And also, at that point, 2016, it was still a big job being editor of The Sun, right? And that could have potentially been my next position. And then I had this epiphany where I realized, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the editor of The Sun. And at that point, what's the point in being there, right? If you don't want to be that guy, why are you there? And I had to really pluck up the courage to make the decision to leave. And as I say, it took me a good few years to do it. But again, I've been given brilliant advice by somebody I really respect who had said to me, "Well, you're in a position like that, think about a plan B and a plan C if things don't work out for you. Because, you know, ultimately when you work for big companies, it's transactional, right? They get something from you, you get something from them. But when your face doesn't fit, you'll be out the door. Mm. So i would prepared myself and i had been working at XFM since 2010, 2011. been doing this morning. I've been appearing on a tele show here in their X Factor and all the rest of it. So I was really keen on doing that. But then I had this horrible situation all the time every time a job came up that I thought was was running for on TV, they'd just say, oh, you're the sun guy. I'd be like, oh, I'm not f- I don't want to be the sun guy anymore. <laughs> but it's too late. It's too late by that point. Mm. So, you know, getting out of it and plucking up the courage to do it was a massive, massive thing in my life. Am I over it? Probably not. You know, as recently as last week, I had a commissioner at the BBC who said, there's still a cloud over you because you work for the sun which is like a punch in the bollocks every time I hear it because I've tried my very best to move away from that, be a different person and, you know, establish myself elsewhere. So I'm not over it. And it's like a chip on the shoulder I carry around me. And, you know, I read a really good book recently um, that was talking about exactly that. How do you redefine yourself after you've been in a position like that? It was a special forces thing. It was Foxy, actually. And he said that, you know, he had to go through the same thing, leaving the SBS. you know, how does yeah. he create himself again? And you're, it, you're it, probably it, going through the same thing.
1: It's if, no, it's a very similar situation, isn't it? And obviously different lines of work. You're working in the army, you're working for the sun or the newspapers, and then you, or you could be a footballer, or, or you, could, you could have an identity for such a long amount of time. And then when that comes to an end, for whatever reason, whether you leave or you're asked to leave or you're thrown out, it's a horrible cognitive dissonance that happens in men from where we come from. Like, Oh, who am I? What do I do now? And, and, and that's, I find that incredibly fascinating because more often now in our lifetimes, we're going to be living a lot longer. And the way that things move on so rapidly and jobs come and go, we're going to have maybe four or five jobs in our lifetime, four or five identities, if we want to be that close to our jobs. I find that fascinating because my dad only had one job his entire life. He was a copper. And his dad only had, well, he had two. He was, he was a minor, then he was a lorry driver. But, you know, solid, long-term, safe. And you're just, well, like most guys, having to reevaluate, reassess, and pick up and go because this is also the societal weight that's on our shoulders of, oh, we have to have it for as long as possible because that's a true sign of success. And that, like I say, that cognitive dissonance is an absolute nightmare to to cope with. It is is post-traumatic stress disorder and it's very similar to it,
0: isn't it? It's so important that we talk about that, because I think that's the, the crux yes. of November, right? It's yes. um one of the biggest reasons for suicide is when people lose their job or lose their financial security. And I think it's dead important for guys like me, guys like you, to admit it, right? I, you know, this year lost my voice, lost my health, had a horrible five months through COVID where I, I you know, I thought I was genuinely seriously ill with with this lump on my voice, couldn't speak, couldn't do my job. And I'm suddenly thinking, I finally got out of the newspapers. And now, because the circumstances out right, with my control, my health, and because of the coronavirus situation, I can't get the operation. And then as a result of that, lost my job, financial pressures, COVID cutbacks. And, you know, there I, I turned 40 in March, three weeks into lockdown, Got an existential crisis happening about getting older, um, you know. And I've lost—I feel like I've lost my identity. And you know, when I'm feeling vulnerable and feeling low, which I have been a lot recently, and worrying about money, worrying about the future, I, you know, you, you do sometimes question your identity. And do I just there's this horrible fear all the time that I'm going to have to go back and be that guy in newspapers, and I just don't want to do it. But you know, at some point, you can't—you can't—you've you can't, you know, got to look after yourself financially. And if that means doing it, I'll have to do it because I would do anything for my children and do anything for my wife. So and I think we have to be honest about that. And it, this year has been an absolute shocker for me, a total stinker. But I'm trying my best not to about it and I'm trying my best to look at the positive side of it. The other positive side from the situation I've found myself in is that it's the most I've ever been in my family. Mm. Uh, so I've, I've been present, but not present in terms of attention or focus when I've been with my kids because I've had other stuff going on. And I've had eight months at home trying to be a good dad, trying to be a good husband, which has been lovely. But yeah, I think it's important people know I'm shitting myself about the situation we're in. I'm scared about the future. I'm anxious about what happens next. I'm concerned about what happens in the next 25 years of my career. Um, We all all have those feelings. And if anybody is listening who's in a similar position, you are not alone.
1: Yeah. I think that's really really important. And it gets thrown around quite a lot, that um, that saying, but it's actually very, very true. The The, the staggering figures of male su- suicide before this pandemic were beyond horrendous. And and I have a feeling with uh, huge pockets of society in the world without purpose, without a sense of belonging, without that self-esteem that comes with that, I feel that so many people will will struggle because of it, and and just having these conversations and listening and and understanding that there there is always another day, and t- these these things do always pass. As you as you, you you'd always hear I'm as well. well at the same time.
0: How are you doing at the moment, Matt? Are you all right?
1: I'm I'm actually pretty good. Um, it's it's been a a really interesting year for me. Um, I think one of my one of my biggest uh learnings over the last 10 years is that my identity is only whatever i wanted to be it's not what it should be or what i think it should be like you saw me on this morning and that job for me was a big hey look everybody back in wales look what i've just done i'm on this morning that's enough right and they didn't give a shit and and i gave more of a shit and and i was I had an experience of this morning that I'd never forget. And then when I got booted off that program effectively, like you say, people who are your mates don't necessarily call as often. And jobs that were always coming in left, right and center because you're on a flagship show like that don't come in as often. And it's a a very humbling experience. So over the last six, seven years since that, it's it's been a real huge process of Self discovery because I didn't know who, who the hell I was. I had no idea. I was just doing whatever it took, very much like you on a smaller scale. I took OK TV, Richard Desmond's show from Channel Five. I did that. I had no idea who Richard Desmond was. I was like, "Hey, right, Rich, yeah, what's going on?" And fundamentally, our core values do not align. And. But I didn't know that. And I, but I would, do, I would do whatever it took. I was like, oh, mean, I'm from Wales. I'll do whatever on the television. I do not give a shit. But as, as you grow older, you get this self of sense. And I think throughout the last year, I, in the, definitely this year, throughout COVID, it's really given me an opportunity to really hone in on that, really look into who the fuck am I? What do I want to do? What do I bring to the world? And what, what is my idea of success? And I think that's been mm-hmm. really important. And it's an ongoing process and it's a big old um, learning thing for me. But, yeah, to answer your question, I'm doing very, very good. I'm, I'm, I'm more good aware of who I am right now. Good. Yeah, it's
0: really um, good. You know, it's good to hear you say that because I think a question that I often ask myself is what price do you put on happiness, right? Yeah. Um, what value, you know, how much would you pay to have that feeling every day where you feel fulfilled or loved or happy, Um, And it isn't often a check from a company you don't want to work for, or it isn't often a job, or it's not material, it's not financial. It's just that feeling of being happy. And I've, I've managed to reconnect quite a lot this year with people where I grew up. And I had a night out between the lockdown and things getting serious again, where one of my friends turned 40, a guy called Hoodie. And what a laugh we had. Like, when we were teenagers, what a gaggle of idiots we were. And some of the stories, I was just like... It's remarkable because sometimes you have got to remember what you've been through to get to this bit, right? And that yeah. that's remarkable in itself. We're still here, and that is that's <laughs> incredible.
1: <laughs> Hanging on, isn't it? It's Hi. it's it is it is remarkable, I, and I and I've done exactly the same. I, I I've reached out to my old mates from back home, Caffrey, Kestel, Sankey, and all the lads, Dino, and we've had cider and black on Zoom over over. Um, <laughs> Over the lockdown period, and and there's a reason why that happened. It's because that's the relationships that are really important in life. Those connections were genuine at those times. We've gone so far and apart, and in so many ways. But I mean, throughout this year, it's hopefully for lots of people, and and I know it's been devastating for so many people. But hopefully, it gives us an opportunity to tap into those those actual authentic happiness moments where you can get by picking up a, your phone and talking to your mates and just catching up and just sharing a cider on Skype or something.
0: Yeah, Tom, man, absolutely. Here, here. I'll drink to that. It's funny, isn't it? Like, we talk quite a lot about career stuff and all that, but, you know, while all of that's happening, which can be stressful and difficult and put you in a position, but you always have the, the other noise of family and friends, don't you? Which brings up another drama to it and, <laughs> you want to be a good, you want to be a good mate. Oh, yeah! I love that Matthew McConaughey podcast, and he talks about the thirteen pillars of life, right? And every now and again, you don't give one of them enough attention, so the tabletop just tilts, and things start falling off. So you, mm-hmm. you know, go through a spell where he's not a great husband, and his wife will get the hump, so that that pillar just drops down, and everything falls off the table. And he, he said <laughs> that your friends are such an important pillar of that, you know, and you have to make sure that you invest time back into them. And I've probably been quite guilty in the past of being so focused on sorting my own shit out and looking after my own family that I've maybe neglected the people that have helped me get to that point and it's great to just spend a bit of time with them ripping the piss out of each other playing golf or football or rugby or whatever it is.
1: What is what is the ideal next step for you?
0: I would love to have a really good radio show on national radio and I'd love to be you know I don't want to use his name right but I'm going to have to (laughs) I don't I'd like to be Uh, a more timid Piers Morgan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's been nice talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like
0: to be a a likable Piers Morgan, somebody who has a column in a magazine who writes books occasionally, appears on TV, uh, and can add some value to a conversation in the country by being a reasonable person. I think that would be good. But again, the other side of that question, the right answer to that is being healthy. Uh, and being yeah. a really good, a really good father and a, a good husband, because you know, I've found in my life, if I don't have that bit right, if the foundations of that aren't right, everything else goes to shit very quickly. Like I can't, I need to have the security of that all being right for anything else to function. So, if I can get the home bit right, hopefully the career stuff will, will click a wee bit. but it's, it's easier said than done.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think it does. You can control it a lot more now by having your own. Uh, Sorry, there's my dog just shaking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's my missus. Thank God Um, for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's such an interesting time in the world of creativity and media. Um, I mean, especially throughout this year, I've just gone, do you know what? They're not commissioning new things or they're not even looking. They're not looking for another Welsh male presenter Mm -hmm. to do stuff. That's fine. I will... Do it myself, and I will control my my content, and I will control the narrative of whatever I want to do without somebody saying you should do it like this. Because this is these are the times, or we can't have that because the country's a bit more right wing now. I can't be dealing with that nonsense, and I can't be dealing also. And i, I, I and maybe you, I may be wrong, but you you hit the nail on the head there with um, being a bit more in the middle and a bit being a bit fairer than Piers Morgan. I find it hard to go on television now and be in that position because I'm kind of fair. I, I can see both sides of the story and I can listen to anybody from both sides. I feel as if you have to be one or the other and loud. And that's just the world we, find we live in at the moment, which, which I find really annoying. But I think there's a wonderful thing happening where, I mean, if you collect bottle tops, you can get a billion followers and something and you can monetize that. There's definitely a podcast you can do. There's definitely an Instagram page. you thrive on A YouTube channel as well. I mean, that's quite an exciting thing. Do you find that is the case that you're going in going, I want to be a better looking, kinder Piers Morgan. I added better looking because I like Thank you. you. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> but is it hard going in more central? Do you feel like you have to swing
0: yeah. left or right? I find it massively overwhelming, Matt, for a number of reasons, right? I, you know, I lived in a confrontational business for 15, 16, 17 years. And in the end, you run out of steam for the fight. And I, I'm the same as you. Like I, I was a very early adopter of social media, so I was on Twitter very early. And I got really into it early on for the first four or five years when I worked for the paper and got up a decent audience. And then... Massively, spectacularly fell out of love with it because it just felt like a constant fight, and I had enough confrontation at work without having to deal with the the argument that just existed all the time. Right? It's it's quite hard, and I think it's bad for you, really bad for your mental health, that you can't step away from it. And my my relationship with it's changed massively over the years. I got really on Instagram because it didn't seem to be busy with trolling. But then i find myself getting sucked into this horrible relentless cycle of oh man that person's doing what i would like to be doing or why wasn't i even approached for that or oh shit i went for that job and i didn't get it or mm. um you know I, I just it was it's not a healthy relationship but i'm still kind of battling it um, it's it's really overwhelming and the tv thing you know i still have desires to work on telly but i don't want to be the shouty guy i'm not the mm. shouty guy and I think there's always an expectation because of my background and following the same career path as guys like Piers that you're going to be that overly opinionated right-wing person and fundamentally couldn't be further from that guy. You know, my politics I'm very private about. You know, again, I'm very grateful to my parents for instilling that in me early on because you can never have a civil conversation about politics. Certainly not now. You can't say, well, these are my beliefs without somebody going, well, you're wrong! and I'll tell you why you're wrong. And you're going to sit there and listen while I shout at you for why you're wrong. I'd just rather not have a conversation and have my own beliefs. And if you have a different, completely polarized view from me, fine, that's cool. You know, I think we've, we've got confused in the world now about um, opinion. Uh, it's absolutely fine to have one. It's just wrong, in my opinion, to scream at people because your opinion's different. And I just find it too overwhelming. But you're right, the the TV thing and looking for job stuff, I found pretty demoralizing actually, you know, like three years with an agent and um, who I think you might've been with at the same time. And every time I felt like the conversation would always go back to, you're the guy from the sun. Mm. And then every time I signed up with a different agent, it would be, I think I'm here because they want me for crisis management for when somebody fucks up. Uh, and then in the end, I kind of convinced myself this year, maybe I am just got a got to become comfortable with being that guy. Maybe I am going to be a crisis management, the Winston Wolfe character who you can phone up when you have spectacularly fucked up. And that has been happening for about seven years now behind the scenes. And it can be quite rewarding, but it can also be really depressing. And it just reminds me of dark times in newspapers. But yeah, it's it's hard because, you know, at some point, I'm just going to have to get a grip on myself and stop listening to the You're the Sun guy and just, crack on, and I kind of admire people in the media who, who just don't seem to bother about that, um, because I'm probably too sensitive, and probably too thin-skinned, believe it or not, um, and, and listen to too much people say about me.
1: Well, it's, it was very interesting when I first met you, and got to know you briefly, and not that I'm a, a massively awesome judge of character or uh, know people, but I just knew you weren't the person that, that they were putting in front of me. I, you know, there was more to it. And I could see you, actually see you instead of the sun guy. And, yeah. and, and if it's, if for what it's worth, to me, you're not the sun guy.
0: Thank you. That means a lot to me, you know, because it uh, happens all the time, this conversation. Like uh, recently, uh, Matt Smith... Doctor Who said to me one night, he said, do you know what? The BBC used to tell me you were evil. And he said, you're just, you're not, are you? And I'm like, no, it was a job. Like, you know, I, I, what do you, do you think I've got? People expect you to have devil horns and a tail, right? And it happens all the time. And, I, you know, you meet folk and after a while they'll go, go, Ashley, you're all right, aren't you? And you're like, well, yeah, thank you. I'd like, you know, I'd like to think in my life, I'll bring my children up not to judge people based on their career or what they do for a living. And yes. I see it happening all the time. Like, I remember being at a dinner party and uh, somebody said to this other guy, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an accountant. And he went, oh, you must be boring. Within 15 <laughs> minutes, this accountant is probably the most rock and roll person I've ever met. <laughs> and that's like, I, it just really bothers me that we make these superficial things. And and, and I, you know, I get really worried that maybe I'm shit at selling myself or explaining who I really am to folk. But, there's loads of stuff behind the scenes that I do that, you, that folk don't know about. Like, well, that's the you know, thing.
1: You're going to feel like you have to project this as a person, this this non-sun person, at every given opportunity now.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you one, actually, that'll make you laugh, right? Go on. So for a long time, I've sat on the committee at the Groucho, right? Which is this... I think I'm the only tabloid journalist ever to be allowed in as a member, right? And uh, you suddenly have all these names passing in front of you of people who have applied for membership. And... Uh, Two or three examples I can think of at the top of my head of people who have said, "Sorry, I, I just can't be around you," or, you know, be in your company because you can't be trusted. And then their membership applications sitting in front of me, and you, <laughs> and I've and I've passed it and said, "No, they're all right." You know, I can understand why they would feel that way about me. And then subsequently bumped into them, and they have no idea, absolutely no idea. <laughs> and, but you like, even the guys in the committee, every every time we meet, I can still tell they don't like me being there because they just in their head. They need me to be the evil guy they can hate, and I'm fine <laughs> with that, right? If that, that's if that's for them, that's cool. But it's a lot of shit to carry around me if you feel like that about things. It,
1: it feels like you're on the edge of just going. Well, maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe I'll become the person that you don't you want me to be, Rawr, like some fucking yeah. film. But please don't. Please <laughs> no. hang on in there. Please, please, uh, and and can we go for a beer as soon as we yes, can? Man. Uh, mate, thank you so much for your time today. I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for supporting Movember as well. We really appreciate it and and thanks for being so open today. We really appreciate it.
0: Oh um, man, it's a real pleasure and I think if I could just say to finish off, like, it, you know, we've both been very fortunate to have careers that have given us a an exciting life but, Everybody struggles, right? And, you know, I think it's important to remind folk that it, it can be brutal. And the family stuff that you have to deal with alone, you know, I've got a brother, he's 43. My big brother, he's a dentist. He looks in people's mouths every single day. And, you know, he's had these struggles and he finds it tough. My dad, GP, right? Uh, like you say, one career all of his life. And I was moaning like anything to him just the other week, right? He's 66 years old, dealing with the coronavirus stuff as a GP. And... Um, You know, he's had whooping cough in the last year because of a patient he saw who hadn't had their vaccinations. He's got a lot on his plate. And he told me a story recently about something that happened to him when he was just starting off as a GP. And for all you might think, things are tough and it's only you. Everybody, regardless of their profession, their walk of life, where they come from, you might think they might be the most robust, tough, um, capable human being everyone's having a wobble inside right and um, if you can take some solace and some comfort from that hopefully that that might give you some support and uh, I can tell you right now I am shitting myself about what's going on in the world and where I stand so look we're all in it together we'll get through it Matt won't we? Absolutely
1: will thank you very much for those kind words it's
0: wonderful thank you mate thanks for, brother
1: Change the face of men's health. For more information or to support Movember, head to Movember.com. Hold up. What was that?